Welcome to Behind the Blue. I'm Cody Kaiser with UK Public Relations and Strategic Communications. Students are often figuratively encouraged to reach for the stars. Yet, there are those who actually follow this aspirational goal in a very literal way. For example, longtime University of Kentucky professor of physics and astronomy Gary Furland, who recently received a very rare honor for his work in blazing new trails in his chosen field. On this episode of Behind the Blue, UKPR's Carl Nathy talks with Furland about his life, his career, and why he loves working with students. We are very pleased to be joined on this edition of the Behind the Blue podcast by Gary Furland, who's a longtime professor here at the University of Kentucky. Gary, I'm going to leave it to you. Give us your your title. I know you've, you've, you've got more than one title. We're going to get into some of the honors you've earned in your great career. But what is your title at the university? Uh, officially, it's Professor of astro- Physics and Astronomy, though we don't really use titles in that part of, ca- of campus. So it's... Well, you've had a most interesting career, most interesting life. Let's take us back, if you will, uh, to the beginning, where you uh, grew up and where you were educated and so forth. My father was a pilot in the Air Force, so I grew up all over the place and moved around every 30 months. And so I was around the flight line all the time, and there were lots of really uh, fantastic airplanes constantly flying over. And uh, my lifetime goal was to become a a pilot in the Air Force. Unfortunately, when I was an early teenager, the the glasses hit, and that version of the Air Force uh, didn't deal with glasses, so that was closed. And once you're looking up, uh, just keep going that direction, and the stars are next. And it, simultaneously, uh, the space program, the manned space program was happening, human spaceflight. And that really captured the imagination. We can't appreciate today just how much that was just new and marvelous and wonderful and, and like a new universe. And it really captivated uh, public imagination. There's a lot of the enthusiasm for the early human spaceflight leading up to the moon landings. And so that, you know, that's, that was a resonance both with uh, looking up into the, the sky and the Air Force background, the human spaceflight. So the, my timing in some ways was, was just perfect. When I, I decided I wanted to become an astronaut or a pilot or that kind of thing, and astronomy was the next thing, and they said, well, go off and be a physics major as an undergraduate. So I went off and did that. So my father's last station was in San Antonio. A lot of Air Force bases in San Antonio ended up at the University of Texas. And by the time I got my my bachelor's degree, NASA had basically been shut down after the Apollo. So it was gone. That that part was just gone. And astronomy was what was left. And that that uh, is what I continued to do. Texas had a observatory out in West Texas, McDonald Observatory, and it didn't look like I would be able to do any better than where I already was and stayed in Austin uh, and uh, was very fortunate to be out at the observatory one night when unexpectedly a a new star just blew up. It, It became one of the brightest stars in the sky for about two weeks. Nobody had any idea what this new star was or even exactly where it was in the sky, you know, with a really big telescope, 
it can be hard to point it at a place in the sky if you don't know the computer coordinates. It took a while to point a telescope at the sky, and I remember to this day looking through the eyepiece at the star that was so bright that it hurt your eyes looking at it through a, a big telescope. And it was, uh, no one knew what it was, what was going on, if it was, if it was dangerous to the Earth. And here I had this big telescope with lots of instrumentation, and I could find out what was happening. And so that sort of became a life mission. So that was a turning point. Wow. That's very interesting. Now, you're at the University of Texas. You get your undergraduate degree in physics. Before we go any further, at the University of Kentucky, you're grouped within the College of Arts and Sciences, and it's physics and astronomy. And those fields are are, are interconnected, hence the uh, why why you're aligned the way you are, right? It's in, in universities of the, of our size, that, that's the best way to get things together because then you have these resources and things, you know, the graduate program, that kind of thing that you're 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 doing, and then you have a lot of hands, a lot of capable hands can help out. If we were for at, at, at a university the size of UK were to fracture off into an astronomy department, we'd only have five or six people in the department, and those kinds of departments don't thrive. It's just too much work for too few people. So, I think I think we uh, are in the best situation with a thirty-person physics department, uh, all helping out. We get along very well, and physics and astronomy every passing year are coming close closer together and they're not really such different fields as they had been. It's, a, it, it's right. This is the right way to do it. Good. Now, when you got your PhD at the university of Texas, uh, looks like a very exciting opportunity came your way. Uh, Cambridge university. You went there to uh, participate in research in the late seventies. What happened? See, this star blew up right in my face, and so I started studying. It's just matter under duress in very violent conditions. It was actually we know what it is today. It's a type of star called a white dwarf, which is a uh, the mass of the sun but squeezed into the size of the Earth, and and they're actually fairly common occurrences. One one will go off every 20, 30, 20 or thirty thousand years, and it doesn't actually hurt the star. But so they can do it more than once. But the the observations I, I was conducting was matter under uh, extreme conditions, and so I started. I worked on that for several years as a thesis, and then Cambridge at that time had this big, big interest on uh, supermassive black holes. These are the black holes in the center of galaxies, and so Martin Rees, who's uh, now Lord Rees, was um, my uh, had a project to uh, look at gas very, very close to these super big black holes. These are black holes with a billion times the mass of the sun, 100 million times the mass of the sun. So they needed an expert who knew exactly what I had been doing for the last couple of years. I was doing it on a star, material near a star, and they were interested in material near a black hole. It's actually the same basic physics. And so they made an offer. I went out there, moved to England, lived there for several years, and it was, uh, you know, it was a, a wonderful time. It was just such a different world than uh, I'd experienced in Austin—a different way of doing things, a different lifestyle. 
And that actually, one of the biggest things, this sounds silly, but this is uh, one of the, the biggest reasons I'm here, I'm still here today. In Cambridge, uh, was, Cambridge is an ancient medieval city, and you're not going to get a car into Cambridge because those, those town, the streets are too narrow, and they're designed for a horse, and uh, a horse a thousand years ago. And so nearly everybody rode bicycles absolutely everywhere, and I knew when I left Cambridge that I had to go somewhere where I could ride a bike to work and afford to live. Well, you can count those places on the fingers of one hand. And Lexington just really stuck out as, as one of them. Uh, it's, uh, one of the attractions at UK was that UK had exactly the same computer as Cambridge University did. And the reason for that is Lexington had a, a huge IBM plant, which eventually became Lex, Lexmark. And IBM was famous for putting their plants into wonderful places to live. They wanted their employees to be very happy and contented. So there was an IBM plant in Austin. So Austin is famous for its music scene and the art scene and all that. And there was an IBM plant here in Lexington. So you know, that if you made a list of the towns that had IBM plants, these were all fabulous places to live. And then if you little down, how many of those are you going to ride a bike to work? <laughs> so you're, you're almost down to the number of thumbs on one hand. And so Lexington was just the perfect fit with all those ingredients. I've gotten job offers. People have tried to recruit me away in the time since. And uh, without exception, it would involve driving a car half an hour to work, and I'm not going to do that. I, I, I live in a part of Lexington, so I have a, a 10-mile bike ride to and from work every day, and uh, that has tremendous health benefits. So this is you know, a delightful place to live with a lot of strong support for doing uh, computer work. When you came to the University of Kentucky, first as an assistant and eventually associate professor, and if I'm right, you were here for about five years, but then you did uh, take a little uh, detour with your career. Uh, I, I, I mean, yeah. a detour in a good way. Go ahead. Ohio State recruited me away. They were building up a big astronomy department. And so in the meantime, I had met my wife and married her, and she had moved here from California because she wanted to be near the horses. So she does thoroughbred racehorses. <laughs> and so... Uh, so I had a wife who did thoroughbred racehorses, and in all the world, the bluegrass of Kentucky was number one. There's no place better to live. I moved up to Columbus and proceeded to drive a car to work 40 minutes each direction. I absolutely hated that. There's no way to ride a bike to work in Columbus. It would just not be safe or practical. And so we lasted there five or six years, and we realized, you know, it's way better in Lexington. Why did we do this? And uh, the Center for Computational Sciences was, by that time, going full swing. And John Connolly, their director, uh, had a package and brought me back. Uh, so that was uh, a, a very nice time that, that really worked out. So it's the horses and the, and the bike. You can't, <laughs> can't get away from the two of those. Well, the good news is you've been back here for uh, going on 20, well, 29 years, going on 30, I guess, as a professor at the University of Kentucky. 
And you mentioned John Connolly in the Center for Computational Sciences. Uh, your most recent honor, we want to congratulate you. Uh, uh, you've been uh, named and elected as a fellow of the American Astronomical Society, and I've read a story about you with that honor, and I believe in that story you mentioned the impact of the, the Center for Computational Science and how it played a role, and there's kind of a project that you've been involved with a long, a long period of time. Talk about that, if you would. Well, UK had this very long investment in supercomputers. That was uh, I, I, the rumor that we were told is because IBM would give away a computer 30, 40 years ago if they had a big plant and wanted to nurture just this friendship with the community. So it had a, a, a going way back, there was a strong investment in high end computing. And then while I was away, uh, the state reorganized how it supported that part of the university. So uh, the stronger state support came in. John Connolly was hired here at UK. From He had been a program officer at the NSF. And he wanted to establish the Center for Computational Sciences as a premier research cluster, uh, drawing together people with many different interests, but bound together by the common interest in in, um, in in computer work, so uh, the, the center is still here. John has since retired, but uh, he he for twenty years or so he provided every possible assistance to make life easier for for the project I was doing and the kind of work I was doing. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about that. I know I'm jumping around on you a little bit here, but let's talk about that uh, that particular project a little bit. Well, the problem in astronomy is we can't do an experiment. We can't, uh, here in the solar system, we can. We can send spacecraft out. But if you get out to interesting distances, the nearest star is four light years away, the nearest galaxy a couple million light years away. We, We can't go there and touch it and make an experiment. And unfortunately, as much fun as Star Trek is, if the laws of physics as we understand it, that never happen. It will take hundreds of thousands or millions of years to go out and explore. So what astronomers are good at is remote sensing. It's kind of like spy satellites watching something else. So we can sit here on the Earth and we can observe. We can't do an experiment. We have an advantage. We have an advantage we have it over physics. In physics, you can do an experiment, but we have an advantage. We can't do an experiment, but we have a time machine. So we can look back in time. If you want to go find out what was going on in our galaxy a billion years ago, all you got to do is find a galaxy, something like ours, that's a billion light years away from us. It takes a light a billion years to travel a billion light years. So you're looking a billion years back in time. And so you, we can see all the way back 14 billion years ago. And so we can, we can look out there and look back in time, but all we can do is look at the light. And so what I started doing was working on a big uh, computer program uh, that would, uh, in a computer, would b- take the laws of physics, atomic physics, quantum mechanics, uh, physical mechanics, thermodynamics, rate of transfer, all those laws of physics, huge list of equations. And uh, so each one of those, we know exactly how to uh, to handle that and put it together and what you can do in the computer 
is do a, a what if scenario. Yes, what would happen if you had gas uh, a million miles away from a black hole with this particular density and pressure? And so, what the goal is is to predict what kind of light it would produce because that's what our telescopes can measure. So, the what the program does is do a complete simulation on a computer, and then it tells you what the telescope would see. So this is an example of what's called the inverse problem. We know the answer. We know the light that came out of the distant object. We're trying to figure out the question. What happened out there that produced that light? There's a uniqueness problem. You know, the, the 42 is the answer to a lot of different questions. But what we do in astronomy is we, we, we get the light, analyze it as best we can to, to, to see what we have received, and then using this computer program, it's called Cloudy, it's uh, very widely used, uh, that you can run Cloudy and and uh, set up a, a scenario, to use that word, say, say we have a black hole here, uh, the, the gas near a black hole is emitting this kind of light, and then you take, if I have a cloud sitting over here with a particular density, uh, we can answer the question of what kind of light that would produce. And then we can then compare that prediction with what was seen at the telescope and then adjust the what would assume happened out there. And so this is this is the way we make progress in astronomy. We can't do an experiment. We have to we have to observe what we receive, what we happen to receive from the cosmos, and then here on the Earth, try to set up the same deal in a computer and, and see if we can reproduce what was seen. And an interesting name, a simple name, but but cloudy seems very appropriate. Well, I got to tell you about that. So I got to, to Cambridge, and uh, there's a uh, they had a, they had a big connection with. Uh, people at Caltech in Southern California near Los Angeles. And so what would happen is the uh, people from Caltech would show up in Cambridge, and East Anglia is notoriously cloudy. So my father told me uh, when he was in the Air Force in World War II, they told him if he ever got lost over Europe, just uh, you know, coming back from Germany or something like that, just find the biggest, darkest, densest cloud you can find, and you can be sure England is under it. So, <laughs> so, so you never could get too lost. But anyway, so we were on the on the ground underneath all these clouds, and the people from Southern California were constantly complaining because it was so cloudy. And so I just arrived from Texas, which is to, kind of like a barren desert. And so I had this office that looked out on this meadow with tall growing grass. And then there were either cows or horses grazing about 10 feet in front of my office on this grass. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And here all these people were complaining, it's cloudy, it's cloudy. Yeah, that's great. I like cloudy. So it, uh, it you know, it rained a lot, but it was very, very green. It was uh, uh, beautiful, lush green uh uh, foliage everywhere, and then the animals were out grazing. So it was named after the East Anglian weather, and named after the weather in Cambridge. You know, we have uh, some common ground. My father was in World War II and was in the uh, Army Air Corps, uh, I guess, which was the kind of the forerunner 
of the Air Force was he was a navigator on B twenty four and often talked about uh, Europe and uh, of course it was his job to make sure they were going on the right course and using all the uh, they don't ha- they didn't have all the sophisticated instrumentation that they do now on on airplanes and I'm sure your dad uh, knew all that but it, interesting when you when you talk to somebody it's another way that the world is is big but it's it's small right it's a small world now with the i guess the term that you that this cloudy program uh, lends itself to uh, am i right the term is spectroscopy right so in much of science uh you know the csi tv shows show a lot of it uh, the best way to do remote sensing, if you can see something, what you do is take the light that you receive. Most people think about that. They think about pictures. There's a fantastic website that NASA finances called Astronomy Picture of the Day. And it shows you just Google it and it shows uh, a spectacular image every single day. So those are a lot of fun. In fact, I, I look at it every single day. But that's mostly not what we do. It's a lot of fun to look at, but you can't really get hard numbers out of a picture. And so what astronomers do and chemists and physicists and medicine everywhere, uh, you would take the light and then pass it uh, through an instrument so that you can see the rainbow. You disperse it into a rainbow. If you look at a rainbow, you're doing spectroscopy. So you disperse it into the various colors. And if you look very carefully Uh, an astronomical source or even an incandescent light bulb here on the earth is not a pure rainbow. It has certain very, very bright colors out in space. You can find uh, stars that have certain very uh, dark colors. The colors are missing. And that pattern of emission and absorption, super bright, super dark, uh, has a lot of information about what kind of elements are out there, how hot it is, and what the pressure is. So this, that's what Cloudy does, in fact, is one of the mission goals, is you would take the spectrum, take the rainbow that you would get. Uh, nowadays, we, of course, for, for ages, we did that in, with visible light. But nowadays, you can do that in the X-ray and the ultraviolet with space telescope and the infrared. So all those are, are now available to us. The other thing that's marvelous about you know, being at UK, riding a bike and having the horses is back in the old days, long ago, every university that wanted to compete had to spend five or ten million dollars to buy their own big telescope. Well, nowadays, today, we're looking at things that are so far away that you have to build a, a billion dollar telescope to see them. And then if you talk about these other kinds of light, like X-ray light, ultraviolet light, some types of infrared, you got to get into orbit. So now you're talking several billion dollars. Well, no university can afford that. No one, no one country can even afford that. So what happens is half a dozen dozen com- company countries get together to to finance. Space Telescope is is financed by uh, a, a number of countries, and all modern missions are. And what that means is it. The playing ground is super level. So here at the University of Kentucky, we have exactly the same access to all those uh, all those on-orbit or huge telescopes as you do at Princeton or Harvard or Caltech. Uh, 
of course, in, in the Caltech's the worst case. If you live in Caltech, you can drive a car 90 minutes every day, each direction. So you can spend three hours a day in a car. <laughs> Here in Lexington, you spend, uh, I spend 40 minutes a day on a bicycle. <laughs> so that's a, that's a very different lifestyle. Now, I wanted to ask you, speaking of Lexington and the University of Kentucky and uh, uh, the McAdam Observatory, uh, at UK, named for Dr. Keith McAdam, who sadly passed away several years ago. But let's talk about that. And uh, do you, you and students make use of that on a regular basis? Sure. It's used as a teaching instrument. The decision had been made. At University of Louisville built a similar observatory, and they tried to get as far from town as they could to get really dark skies. So, you know, to actually see the skies... What you want to do is get into a really dark place. Most people you know, today have never seen the Milky Way because they live close to cities. So you got to get way, way far away to really get a good view. And the problem is, is you can run, but you can't avoid the light. If you run away, if you, say, drive 10 miles away, put your our student observatory 10 miles outside of town, well, just wait 10 years and the lights will catch up to you. So that, that's what happened to Louisville. So we decided to optimize student uh, safety and convenience, and we put it on central campus. And so we have a, a sky talk once a month. Uh, it's a public talk, and uh, it's, it's meant to be kind of approachable from middle school students, high school students, they hope the public, everybody's invited. And then uh, after the sky talk, weather permitting, we go over across the street, across Rose Street to... Uh, the top of the parking structure, number four, and uh, uh, there's the observatory. So convenient parking. It's, uh, it's a very safe, secure location. Uh, you might seem a little bit odd to put an observatory inside a city, but there are ways to deal with that, and uh, we get the convenience and the safety for the students. It's right on U- uh, UK's uh, safety corridor. So it's there, and you can do a surprising number of things with that kind of telescopes. For instance, students, uh, undergraduate students here at UK have detected planets around other stars using that uh, observatory. Uh, Ron Willem, a member of our faculty, is an expert at that, and he's developed a technique. So on a routine basis, they're, they're measuring planets around other star, star systems with that, with that telescope. So there are lots of projects you can do. Uh, probably the, the the thing we're most after, you know, we we think, you know, most people think, well, you know, st- uh, astronomy and stars and all that, go, go watch a movie. But if you walk out to the observatory and, and if it's pointed at, say, Jupiter or Saturn or, or the moon or another, another star, you can... You walk up to the eyepiece, and there striking your eye is light that bounced off the surface of the moons uh, a second ago, or light that came from another star a thousand years ago. And so the light came all the way across space and then made it through the telescope, and it's actually hitting hitting your eye. So that's a a human experience that you can't get just looking on the Internet at, at photos. So we use it uh, for public outreach with the Sky Talk. Invite people to come in to Lexington, come down to the UK. You know, a lot of people 
have not uh, visited UK in that kind of a capacity. You come down to the Chem Physics Building and have a nice uh, big lecture hall and friendly people and hopefully a good talk. And then that's uh, usually in the early evening around sunset and then it gets dark and we walk across Rose Street. There is the observatory up on the parking structure. And if it's clear, uh, they uh, have a chance to, to look at the sky. If it's not clear, we can still look at the telescope. Wonderful. Gary Furland is our guest, professor at the University of Kentucky. And I mentioned earlier in our interview that this career of yours in uh, astronomy and astrophysics, physics and astronomy is your department at the University of Kentucky, but it's literally taken you around the world, not only to Cambridge University in England, but you've been in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Mexico, Chile, Poland. Um, it's quite a career you've had. And But the neatest thing about it to me is that science is a kind of a universal thing. Your, your information, the languages may be a little different that you speak in, but there's a scientific language that you all understand. The wonderful thing about astronomy is, you know, uh, uh, one time I was going into another con- company and I, country and I had a copy of this big computer program on a magnetic tape and I got to, to customs and they wanted to know exactly what was on the magnetic tape and so I ended up getting interviewed for about half an hour and finally uh, customs let me in the country so they, they agreed that I had nothing of value. So, so nothing we have has any uh, value like money. And so you don't go into this field if you want to make a, a lot of money or to, uh, you know, uh, become super famous. So the people who have come into the field are very collegial. They, they share things. We, we all share things. Uh, one thing that's you know very strong today is it's realized that much of this is supported by taxpayer dollars, and so anything in orbit, the you know, taxpayers in many countries have paid for it. So it's the people of the country that paid for it. So in, in many ways, that the people of the country should own the product, and so everything is is openly shared. There's no uh, there's no big secrets. Uh, the uh, openly shared the community shares observatories, the, the observatories are many countries working together, and the knowledge is put out into the, the, the common, uh, in, into the common uh, workplace, so everybody has access to the knowledge, and you know, nowadays most countries even have laws that if taxpayer money has been used to support something, everything that comes out of it needs to be openly accessible to everybody. The taxpayers own it, not the person who, who was helped out by the taxes. So there is a, this, first of all, the personalities that come into the field, I think by nature are, are fairly collegial people and uh, like to share. And uh, all the materials we deal with are almost exclusively supported somehow by, by taxes somewhere, the observatories in particular, the big computers uh, that we have to use. And, uh, uh, and then that brings in the open access part. So there is a, there is a, it is one big family. It, it, it's like that. There aren't that many astronomers. The whole planet has about 6,000 astronomers in my field. Uh, 
quite you know, supermassive black holes and what are called quasars, has maybe 300 people that are working in it. So that's not even like a large high school. And so you can you can know the other people in your field. It's not it's not like medicine or uh, or chemistry where there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people doing it. It's, it's just a few hundred. And um, after a while, you can kind of know people either by reputation or because you actually met them. Now you're you sound to me uh, you're, you're you're fairly modest about your accomplishments, but I do want to talk about uh, what was your reaction when you found out that you were named uh, just very recently as a fellow of the American Astronomical Society, because you talk about a small family. Uh, that's a small family of people. Uh, not everybody uh, gets uh, nominated or invited to be part of that. Well, that's a great honor, and it's perseverance over a lot of years. So it, the, the, the citation was for this computer program called Cloudy. So it was born. I, it was born on August twenty eighth, nineteen seventy eight, and it, it plugged away at it, and it has uh, reached out across the astronomical community. So it's become one of the tools that are is widely used in astronomy. And so that's you know, the, the continuous computer support through the Center of Computational Sciences, and, the, and it was, was one thing that really helped a lot. The fact that it was a requirement that everything be open access was another thing that made it uh, open access to everybody who could have it. So it's this persistence, I think, over many years that, uh, that led to that. No, it was a great honor and very pleased and, and, uh, and very happy. Couple more questions, and we'll 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 give you a chance to have the final word. But I uh, don't want to take too much more of your time. But I am interested. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't be doing this at the University of Kentucky as long as you've been doing it if you didn't love working with students, teaching students, guiding students. Talk about that part of your career. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful experience because a young person brings uh, enthusiasm and joy to a new subject of learning. And if you were just by yourself in a closet working on the same thing for 40 years, you'd probably get kind of burned out or bored or, or something like that. And so the, the students bring in an energy that uh, you, can, you can feed off of. Uh, they, don't, they don't know everything. It's, it's a little bit like having your two-year-old help paint the house if you just want to get the house painted, uh, maybe the two-year-old's not really the best thing to bring in. But uh, having your two-year-old help out uh, becomes a memory that uh, uh, that you remember the rest of your life, and I, I do. Uh, so there's that joy of the of, uh, of a person, another human being that wants to do this doesn't isn't able to quite yet, but wants to learn, and they're learning new and wonderful things. So that, that brings a perspective to, to what's going on. Let me ask you this, and I'm, and I'm not asking uh, uh, you to any big inside secrets or anything, but you have been doing this a long time. You are, uh, if I if I do the math, uh, uh, I'm, I'm semi-retired, but you're, you're at a stage where you could uh, figuratively uh, ride your bike off into the sunset, but it sounds to me like I'm talking to somebody that still has a, a great love for the work you do. Well, you look at Fauci and, and the COVID response. So he's 80 years old. And uh, 
Uh, he obviously loves what he's doing. Uh, you listen to him talk, he, he's, he has the mind of a young person and the enthusiasm of a young person. So, so this keeps you young, and it uh, keeping going and having this kind of engagement keeps you very young. So the, the staff at Cambridge when I was there in the 70s have all retired. They have a mandatory retirement age in England. And uh, last time I was in Cambridge, just before the pandemic, uh, they were all the same. They're all retired, but they're still coming to work. You can't say, yeah, this is too much fun. This is what I want to do with my life. So what, you know, what, what is there you, you would do if you stopped doing this? I don't, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so I think it, uh, you're very, the most fortunate thing that can happen to a person is to find a career that's not a vocation, but you know, it, it's something that you, you just truly love and uh, brings joy to your life and a sense of fulfillment and a, a good reason to get up in the morning. So uh, there's nothing else I think I'd, I'd rather do, and uh, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. Excellent. Well, riding that bike every day for uh, uh 40 minutes or so uh, on your way to and from work. Uh, I'm sure that helps. Like you said, that, that keeps the blood pumping. It, it really does. It, it, uh, speaking of graduate students, I have some of my students can't keep up with me. So, <laughs> and they're uh, less than half my age, but uh, uh, right. It's, it, it, it's a great gift being able to do that and own a home with a yard and a dog and have a reasonable job and ride a bike. You, you add that mix up and as where can you do that? There are very few places you can pull that off. Let me ask you, I just always like my last, uh, my last question or statement of an interview to be, I like to give you an opportunity to add anything maybe that I haven't asked about or a summary comment. Here's your opportunity. But so what does a university bring to the Commonwealth and what does astronomy bring to the Commonwealth? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive. It'd be a lot cheaper just to have strip away the research dimension and just have the, the, the large classes. Uh, what a research university like UK does bring to a community is you have people that are super excited about what they're doing. And they bring that excitement to uh, the young people in their classes. So now graduate classes are very specialized, and most graduate students are going to leave here, so, so they leave Kentucky. But we also teach large introductory astronomy classes. So these classes typically fill the room, the big lecture room in chem physics. So that's 175 people pre-COVID. Uh, we would have about 1,000 students uh, a, a, a semester taking the, the large astronomy classes. So these are non-technical classes meant to be approachable to anybody. And so it's an opportunity to, to, to really explain what it is that science is doing. I always remember uh, a comment I heard John White Brown, so a former, a long time ago, former uh, governor of uh, Kentucky. When he was made governor, someone said, well, you were a student at UK all those years and a law degree, uh, are you going to be play favorites for the University of Kentucky? And so John White Brown, clearly a very smart man, said, well, I was at that university for 
eight years or something like that. And they didn't teach me a single thing that helped me in my fried chicken business. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, the people who they had this guy, a really smart guy, uh, they had him in their classes and they were not able to explain why this stuff is important and why the governor really does need to support uh, this kind of activity so that the, you know, that the kinds of things that are happening can be spread out across the Commonwealth, either through the student observatory or through other things. So I thought the instructors he had missed an opportunity by instructing him. So when I look out at introductory astronomy class, you know, there's probably a Mitch McConnell and a John Y. Brown and a few more just like it sitting out there. These are big classes uh, over the years of it. 20,000 students or so. And it's, this is the, an opportunity to really explain why I think this is important. So I, I, so I see that as a really important mission in, in, that, in that part. And that spirit of what it is science is trying to do and why it makes society better uh, is something that's really best done by someone who's actually down there in the science and doing everyday science and, and really exploring the frontier. Otherwise, if you, you, you just become book book stuff, very academic uh, kind of book learning, very dry. Well, so Gary, see it as a as a mission, as a mission. Excellent. Well, it has been a delight to talk to you. We probably should have done this uh, a while back, but uh, on the occasion of being elected as a fellow of the American Astronomical Society, we congratulate you. Thank you for your time, and uh, wish you continued health and success here at the University of Kentucky. Thank you very much. Great honor. All right. Gary Furland has been our guest, and we thank you all for listening to the Behind the Blue podcast.